Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we have an exclusive interview with the writer and director of Evil Dead Rise, Lee Cronin, alongside the film's sound designer, Peter Albrechtson. We recorded this interview at Dolby House at South by Southwest on the day after the movie's raucous premiere. And it was so much fun to sit down with these two artists to talk about their collaboration on one of the creepiest, most intense, and scariest tracks of the year. And we have some epic clips to show you in this conversation, as well as a breakdown of the excruciating cheese grater sequence. So this episode is not for the squeamish. All of that and more on today's episode, so stay tuned. Thank you guys for coming to the Dolby House to talk to us about this wicked, wicked little film. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank uh, you. How many people were in the audience last night at the Paramount Theater oh, cool. for the opening? Oh, okay. Great. So some of you, uh, you know. Is the heckler here? Um, is he? Because you can push him off that roof real easy. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was one of the more lively audiences I've yeah. ever had the experiences of watching a movie with. Have you watched the film with an audience like that before? What was, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, that, like the, I've never had a, a cinema experience quite like last night. Um, I've been fortunate to see my previous work with some big audiences and some great audiences, but my previous movie, The Hole in the Ground, was more like a whisper at the back of your neck, whereas this is a full frontal scream in the face. So yeah, I, I, for me, it was like an experience I, I'd kind of never had. I'd done, obviously, test screenings, and that's a journey, and the movie's kind of incomplete, so you don't maybe get that same wave of response in the way that we did, but I was just, my producer, John Kevill, is here, and I was just saying to him, there's been so much buildup about the cheese grater and the leg, I was so glad that people finally got to see what we cut back to afterwards. <laughs> that was a big moment for me, and people freaked out, but yeah, it was buzz, and it sounded great. We're here to talk about sound. It's, I thought it, the well, room was I, amazing. I want to ask you about that cheese grater sequence, because, uh, and what that sound was, because the audience was screaming so loud that I wasn't actually able to hear what the sound effect was, so. Well, it's uh, one of many kind of squishy things, lots of fruit, a bit of celery, you know, like when doing movies like this, you really go crazy with the uh, vegetables. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Lee, so you talked about your previous film, which is A Hole in the Ground, and this movie is stylistically a radical departure. I mean, I feel like your previous film was a little bit more of a slow burn. It was very atmospheric, had great sound design, uh, but was just a complete 180 in terms of tone and style. So... Uh, Tell me about making that transition for you, and specifically in terms of sound, how you're using sound differently in this film. Yeah, so the, the hole in the ground definitely is something that has more subtlety in a way, um, and, and in terms of how it was portrayed on screen as an experience. I think from the get-go, when I first connected with Peter on this, I was like, this needs to be extremely dynamic. It needs to be packed full of character. The screenplay calls for lots of detail, lots of insanity so that was our starting point in terms of how we wanted to to actually kind of create this movie and like I take sound very seriously and it's an important part of my writing like the first two or three lines of the screenplay are over black describing sound in this movie like I, I wanted to try and remember what they were but um I didn't get a lot of sleep but uh it, I do know that it, it describes a sound of a, a roaring force and then says, it's in your ears now. So that's the opening of the movie. And I think, Peter, you responded in the screenplay as well to the attention that was paid to sound uh, for the movie. I don't think I've ever read a screenplay with so much sound written into it. Like, it's, it's such a main component of so many scenes in the film. It's an integrated part of the storytelling. So much of the story is told through sound. And there's so many plot points that are told through sound. So... I mean, reading something like this, reading a script like that is incredibly inspiring. Also a little bit panic-inducing because you know that like, there's going to be a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. But it, it was super inspiring just from the get-go. And then when you have that script, it's all also like a, it's like a grocery list of all the stuff that you need to collect, all the sounds you need to record. So that yeah. was amazing. I wanted to ask you about that. So, but, but before we get into that, Lee, I'm, I just want to follow up on this because I, I, we work a lot with you know younger writers and directors, and so often I have found, at least in the United States, like film schools are not really teaching sound as a storytelling tool. Very often, you know, writer-directors are really focused on my dialogue and want to get my words out. So 
how did you, you're writing, you're thinking about sound as you write. How did you develop that skill? What inspired you? Kind of what, where did that come from for you? That's a really nice question because I was telling this story to someone the other day and I hadn't told it in a while. <clears throat> There's a very, very distinct moment um, in my childhood, which was when I saw The Shining for the first time. And I was about, I don't know, it changes every time. But I was somewhere between the ages of eight and 10, maybe seven, seven and 10. That's a perfect age to see The Shining. It, yeah, it is. And if, if it, you know, it, it played a part in the fact that I'm sitting here today. So that actually worked out. So my, um, it was my, I watched it with my, a very specific story, so bear with me. I watched it with my siblings on a Friday. We watched the first half, then our mother called us for dinner. It was spaghetti bolognese. I don't know how I remember that, but that's what we had. And then we went back and watched, and I was going, this movie isn't scary. And then we went back and watched the second half and room 237 came in and I was pretty unnerved, but still wasn't really sure why. And then didn't sleep for three nights and freaked the absolute fuck out. And like, was just like lost. And if I have the same rhythm now as a grown up. If I get scared by a movie, it's light on night one, light on for a good bit of the night, night two, light off, but door open with light outside room on night three. So that was established at that point. And my dad was away on business and he came back and was like, hey, like how, um, you know, how, how's things? And like, how was Lee? And it was like, yeah, he was, he was trouble. Why was he trouble? Well, we showed him The Shining. And he went, oh, that was a terrible idea, but I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, so I need to watch it again. So my dad went out and watched The Shining and I was in bed upstairs, just recovering night four, and I heard the movie downstairs and it scared me even more and triggered it all over again. So that was when I learned the lesson of the importance of sound, the importance of music, and the importance of what you hear, especially in a horror context. That's really interesting you say that, because you reminded me of a story. The, the very first movie I ever worked on was Candyman uh, for the director Bernard Rose, and we were on the mix, and he said something I'll, I've never forgotten. He said, you know, in horror movies, uh, the audience gets scared and they cover their eyes. And that's a terrible mistake because they're still hearing the film and what they're imagining is even worse than what I'm going to show them. He said, if you get scared in the movie, you should cover your ears. Which I, I think was that's great. really true. I think that's really true. And yeah, it left a mark and then I didn't sleep for another three nights. Well, you, you talked about The Shining and of course, I mean, you've got a great homage to The Shining uh, with the elevator and the blood. But even, I was just thinking about this, last night watching the movie, the movie's remarkably contained. Like, it basically exists in one location. Um, it's a terrifying location, and you even establish that. So, Peter, I want to ask you about the character of that building, the, the location, the apartment that we're in. It's unsettling from the very beginning shots when we see it, and, of course, it just gets more and more. So how did you use sound to kind of deeply unsettle us just about the location and this physical space? One of the references that, that Lee talked about from the beginning was Panic Room by David Fincher, which is also based around one location and where the sound designer Ren Kleis has like did these amazing things where like every room has its own identity, even though it's in the same place, like you really feel like you move between the different rooms. And so we did a lot of that, like changing the backgrounds having rain in different aspects, but also having like specific sounds for each room. Um, really trying to make the backgrounds come alive, but then also uh, making almost the apartment fall apart during the whole film so that the floors get more and more creaky. The pipes are making weird sounds. There's rattling. There's all these electric sounds where like the electrical things kind of fall apart and you have all these We did some I love when he does that. <laughs> we did a lot of crazy recordings now, Peter, of like now Peter, do your vocalizations make it into the film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> there's there's a couple of those in there. Yeah, I think we're all in there. I'm I'm the heavy breather in the elevator. Um it seemed to be a speciality of mine. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're also in the kitchen when Bridget is like hearing a voice and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing there a lot of that. There it is, that's the secret of sound design. Just record it yourself and put it in. <laughs> Make noise. But I love what you're saying because one of the things that I, I, it, I didn't immediately clue in to the fact that this is all happening in one location. I think part of it is, as you were saying, like you're giving each individual space within that larger context its own sound. So in a way, you're actually using sound 
to make it feel much bigger than it actually is, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I think overall one of the things, and this is you know from a visual and a, and a sound point of view, was despite the fact that it was contained, I wanted the movie to feel epic, and I knew that sound would pay, play a very very important role in that because. Evil Dead movies are contained. Like, that's kind of part of their DNA. I remember writing an early treatment for the movie that had a lot more of the building involved and a lot more moving through floors. And when this is it's great with good producers. They reminded me and said, but that's not Evil Dead. You know, Evil Dead, we've got to take all those ideas you have, but let's bring it back down into Evil this Evil Dead is a cabin in the woods. It's a cabin in the woods. But we didn't have the forest to escape into, so we needed to find ways to create a little bit of scale inside the building as well. But as, as Peter said, it was great, this idea of... We kind of did it with so many elements of the movie is like um, things falling apart, making them louder, making them creakier, making them more dangerous, making everything become more dread-inducing as the movie continues on deeper into the story. Yeah, for sure. Um, we've got some clips to show. Would you guys like to see a little bit more of the film? Um, I think the first, clip, uh, the first clip that we have that Peter pulled for us is uh, the opening of the Book of the Dead. Do you want to you set this up, or should we just jump right in? I, I think you can just jump right in. Just if you ever find a book like this, don't do it. Don't open it. Fair that's, enough. That's all I can really let's say. Watch, uh, let's watch that fir the first clip. Just leave it, Dan. Oh, Let me see it. It's just a neck. Please close it. Uh, talk to me about the sound design of the Book of the Dead. Uh, I, I read an interview with you in which you talk about the book being alive. So what was your approach to kind of creating that from a sound perspective? I'll let you start, Peter. <laughs> yeah, from the, I mean, from the beginning, this idea of having sa sound making the illustrations come alive was something that we wanted to do from the very beginning. Um, then, uh, I mean, the Book of the Dead is like, it's pretty much the holy bible of evil dead. So, like, really making the iconic sounds of this very, I mean, I, I saw the old films and I was like, okay, so we have to, for example, we got hold of, uh, I got hold of like a, hundred-year-old book from a li local library in Denmark and recorded the pages of the... and then put that together with some of this, uh, a bit of bone crunching and a little bit of animal sound. So just turning the pages was like uh, like a feast of sound in Like itself. ripping something open, right? Sadly, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sound of the, the claws coming up were like a, a sound, sound of a, a cactus recorded in Jesuit Tree Desert, actually. And uh, then you had all these screams and sounds of what's happening in, inside the book, which uh, like Lee keeps on saying that this laughter you hear midway is like me laughing, but it's not. Yeah. But uh, it is suddenly like this thing about making the sounds like <laughs> also building on that. It's one of these sequences where we had, I mean, we, we were doing sound um, while we were picture editing. So we were doing that simultaneously. So these, this is one of these sequences where they, you did a picture version, then I did a sound version for that, and then kept on developing that so that you could also really get that very close collaboration between pictures, sound, like that rhythm of it. Um, it was that was a very integral way, part of the whole process. Yeah, that part was was great, and I think one of the things we talked about with the book specifically was that there was a signature identity to each one of the pages and the images that you saw. As in, as you peel a page back, you're revealing a piece of this dark history. 
So you're hearing those echoes of the past, you're hearing the screams, you're hearing the different noises and giving personality to each, each one of those images. You're hearing sound that was specifically tailored for each one of those horrific each images. Each one of those images, like each what, single what, page. What, what, what might have been happening as those horrible events were taking place? Boiling flesh, screaming, and then decapitation. I mean, then because like actually, um, because the, the book kind of also shows what's gonna happen later on in the film. So there's also a, a few elements of some sounds that actually come later in the film that you then hear like in, in this. So it's, it's also like a, gui- a like a guidebook that you don't wanna read. So you were saying last night at the, one of the questions that came up at the, at the Q&A, Lee, was just how meticulous your preparation was for the shoot. Um, and I think that a lot of that was because a lot of this is physical effects that you actually shot live you know, on set. Um, but can you talk about, did you approach sound in a similar way? Um, at what point did you bring Peter on board? How did you find Peter? This is the first time you guys have worked together, right? It was um, under a bridge, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. No, it was, uh, it, it is, it, it is, sorry, I probably cut off some of your question there, no, did no, no, I? No, I'll, 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 I'll ask follow-ups. Yeah, <laughs> what I've learned, you know, with working with Peter, there's, there's a beautifully tight, compact community. Um, and so when you know someone, they can lead you to somebody else, which is what happened with this. I think I kind of knew of you because you're a big vocal presence online. He, like, he likes to tweet. Um, and Yeah, Peter gives good Twitter. Yeah, if you don't yeah, follow yeah. him, you should. He tweets hard. And um, I'd worked with a sound designer called Steve Fanagan in Dublin. And Steve had worked on a couple of my short films in the past and then wasn't available to work on my debut feature film, The Hole in the Ground, um, which we said, we've got to do the next movie together. And with the pandemic and timing and schedules, uh, once again, Steve wasn't available. And I said, well, look, you keep turning me down. So tell me who I need to work with on this movie. Um, and he didn't even think for a second and sent me Peter's way. And I'm so happy with how that worked out. I feel like a collaborator for life with Peter. Uh, his dedication and commitment is unbelievable to what he does. And did that happen while you were in post or before you shot? No, or? no, long before, yeah. Because I would be very, very fussy and, and wanting to know who's going to lead that charge from early on so that we can start to actually have discussions. Because there's, there's points in the process when you're making stuff where you just can't engage with people. You just don't have the physical time to engage. So we communicated earlier and got the, got the conversations and the process, talked about the screenplay. And yeah, as early, always as early, like I'm working on a script right now and it's, it's nowhere near greenlit or anything, but I'll send it to Peter as soon as it's done. I, that's so important. It's something that I talk with young writers and directors about is, you know, don't, it's, 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 it's the old Hollywood studio model of like, don't think about sound until you're at the director's cut at 10 weeks in, and then bring in the sound people and have them like spackle on a bunch of sound design. And it just doesn't, so I, I love this approach of like, think about this before you go shoot. Engage those artists, start to have those conversations and let that maybe even seep into some decisions that you're making about how you want to shoot the film as well. Totally. I think getting that influence, like, I'm only as good as the people I work with, and it's my job to hopefully steer that ship, but if I've got brilliant collaborators and colleagues early, that's only going to help me on set with, with, with what I do. And I think it's such, this is such a dumb, obvious thing to say, but I always say it, it's like, what you hear is at least 50% of the experience, so, and you know, to me, I have to give it equal attention and focus, you know, and I'll even sometimes play sounds on set, I like to make sounds on set for the actors, like, I think Lily hinted at it in the Q&A last night on this one, which I think you guys probably had to cut a lot of it out. It was a pain, it was a pain in the ass. Was I had a water bottle just like this. Which I'm going to take this, by the way. This is cool. Um, I had a, a water bottle and um, trying to get the rhythm. I sometimes play music on set to get the rhythm of scenes, but it just wasn't quite right on this set. So I had a stick and I would play the water bottle to help with the rhythm of the scene for the actors reacting and kind of performing. So even for me, creating sounds on set to help motivate the atmosphere and the tone and the tempo, I think is really important. So important with horror. So you were editing in Dublin. First of all, you shot the film in New Zealand and then you went home to Dublin to edit. Peter, you're based in in Copenhagen. uh, And so you were doing sound design there. Tell me a little bit about this collaboration and how how, you you guys effectively work together. Yeah, so it started out by uh, John uh, no, sorry, by, by um, the picture editing happening in New Zealand, I was in Copenhagen, then you moved to Ireland, I stayed in Copenhagen for a while, um, so those, I think those were the like, first three months of picture yeah. editing, 
and then I moved to Dublin for a couple of months, uh, and um, while like actually also while you were just finishing the picture edit and so on, and then we did the mixing. We mixed for seven weeks in Copenhagen. Uh, so yeah, you, you the, it, it was mixed, like eight months all in all. Yeah, you mixed in Copenhagen because you that was where the Dolby Atmos mixing stage was. That you exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we mixed this in Atmos, um, and which was amazing for the film because you could really create this enveloping space that we were looking for. Yeah, I think that's what was really amazing about the Atmos as well was helping to give that scale. Like even even just yeah, I've I've sat and heard it in those rooms, and when you hear. Like the, there's a fly you hear buzzing around at the start of the movie, which is the original fly from the original Evil Dead movie. That's you know on, on Evil Dead '81, and the um, that fly. But like hearing it in Atmos, and I remember even just seeing how that was working because it was my cause, yeah because it was my yeah. first experience of, of that process. Um, and it's funny sometimes it's just those nerdy little things that give you energy to work till two o'clock in the morning. You know, let's get the fly right. Um, but it matters, the details sure. count. I, I'm sure the cat in the uh, ducting work in Atmos is pretty, uh, pretty specific and awesome. Yeah, and just creating this feeling of like there's, there's scenes where there's things happening in the ceiling and like they're looking up like that. And we, we, I mean, everything is, it's a very enveloping mix. And I think that's actually part of the claustrophobia in a way, like that you feel you're in the room with them because you're surrounded by the sounds that they're surrounded by. And it creates this feeling of like really being on the edge all the time. One of the things I noticed too about that scene that I loved is I, I, get, I get excited when I'm watching a scene and I'm not really sure if what I'm hearing is sound design or music. There's a great collaboration and interplay between the score and the sound design on this film. So can you talk a little bit about that? And like, did you have access to uh, the uh, the composer's name is Stephen McKeon? That you'd work Stephen with Stephen McKeon, yeah, Stephen. Um, yeah, like I like I like that that the, the blurring of the lines where sometimes music is doing the job of sound design and sometimes sound design is doing the job of music. Um, I don't know why I like it, but I just kind of feel that it's an engaging and interesting way to approach things. And again, I, I'd collaborated with Stephen in the past, so I introduced Stephen to, um, to Peter and, and, and they started to engage in the background as well. And like, I think Stephen took some influence from what we were doing in the movie and in the sound design towards the score where, um, you know, he fancies himself as a, a bit of a metalhead. You know, he likes to feel that he can push the envelope and he can. So. He did some crazy stuff with, you know, get, you know, getting saws and power tools and running them across the strings of his grand piano in his studio and making strange items. Like, like he actually, that was the fun thing with all the sound in this movie, from what Peter did through to the music, there was original creations, things that were built and made to actually get the appropriate sound. And then the same when we were recording the actual, um, the, the, you know, the live score with an orchestra and with a choir and performers. Like, he was just getting them to do things where there was no direction, it was just like, scream in the most strange way you can. Just like, go for it. Use the, t you know, the tool of your vocal cords to give us what we need. And then we would take some elements from Stephen late on in the mix if we were looking for certain sounds because he inadvertently was recording things that was really useful for sound design as well, which was kind of cool. And Stephen was very open for that kind of collaboration as well. It was really amazing. I remember like this, you mentioned the cheese grater scene. Right after that, there was kind of like a musical swell and I was thinking, okay, it needs to be crazier than this. So I took like Steven's music and I took some of my sounds and distorted, like, distorted it like crazy. And Steven came in and like, I was, I was a little worried, like, okay, so what is he gonna say about this? Because you distorted his music. Yeah, I distorted his music. And then I think he went like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steven was so happy. He was like, do more of that. So just listen. I mean, that's amazing. That's a really I actually love that moment. I kind of forget. That, that bit is great. I really love that because it's, it's so grimy. It's so, so grimy. That's great. Uh, let's watch another clip. Uh, this, is a, this is a second clip. This is, um, gosh, I hesitate to even set this up. This is, um, uh, your character's name is, this is Ellie. Ellie yeah. in the elevator, and she gets... Possessed? I don't know. What, what, what term do you use? This is her first encounter. Let's just say it's the, an unfortunate situation. It's an unfortunate situation in the elevator. Go ahead.
I really liked watching this lady with the glasses in her hair's face right there. <laughs> you weren't there last night, were you? you? Okay, yeah. cool. April 21st, go there. Okay, yeah, it's all fresh for you. Uh, your poor actors. Oh, my God, what you put them through. Now, why is the most horrific thing in this entire movie, for me, the earring getting ripped out? It caused a huge reaction in the house last night. It's such a simple little thing, but it, it's just horrifying. It's crazy. It's like small, painful... Things like paper cuts, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they can be, would you rather get stabbed or get a paper cut? Probably get a paper cut, but nonetheless. The thing I love about that scene is it's basically like you've got an actor in an elevator just kind of spinning around for the, a good part. Of, you don't see anything. You're doing this amazing work with the sound design and communicating the power and the terror of this creature. Uh, unpack this scene for us. Tell us, uh, tell us what you were doing and, and, and how you accomplished it. Being really stressed by my demands on this one. That's what he was doing. <laughs> it was, uh, this was one of the scenes that we actually kept coming back to and like uh, for, for this long process that we had, like, because we kept on kind of refining both the sounds of like, okay, so what is she reacting to? Also the whole build of this, because at one point we had music playing, but then we tried taking all the music away. Then now we ended up with having just a little bit of music in there, but it's really so much about the sound. Um, we wanted to be able to go really low in this film. So there's moments like when she's lying on the floor where there's almost no sound, it's super quiet. And then we move all the way up to being extremely loud. There's a fun little thing about like that, the the, the first thing that happened, like one of the first things that I got from the production was um, a digitized sound library of the sounds from the two first Evil Dead movies. So I got all the original, I mean, it was a transfer of the original, like, uh, uh, NACRA recordings with, like, where you heard, like, mad screaming, take two, beep, Mad screaming, take three, beep, yeah! And then Bruce and Sam had recorded lots of this stuff like on their own. It was really amazing. So actually what you hear in the beginning, the, the, what she's reacting to the first time are all sounds from the first two movies because I wanted to kind of build a connection to those movies. I thought that was kind of fun. So if you're really hardcore sound nerd, a big fan of the first two movies, you can hear stuff from the first two movies there. And uh, yeah, then uh, then Lee comes in with a bit of growling, and then we had this uh, uh, Danish singer, Lumor Jenny Rosander, who I worked with on a couple of other projects, who, like, she's a pop singer, but she can do all kinds of crazy things with her voice. And it was something we talked about very early, uh, The Exorcist. Who's her Mercedes McCambridge? Exactly. Who's that going to be, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we wanted to try and get a voice in there that could kind of be the demonic vocal in a way, but do it with a human voice. And she had all, she has this amazing range of sounds. So there's actually like several of her sounds that, I mean, I made sound effects, for example, for the wires coming down, and then I made her replicate those. 
So she kind of replicated my sound design so that we put her voice inside of those sounds as well. So it's a way also of creating this demonic kind of feeling in there. Yeah, it brings kind of a life to it all. It's something we talked about was wanting to have, it's the same like you touched on with the book, to these somewhat inanimate things or maybe wires coming to life. We wanted her to be something behind that, something not human, but something inhuman, but also alive. That makes sense. And I think it really worked. I think what's interesting, just re-watching that scene with, with less of uh, high blood pressure than last night, um, is seeing, um, we, like for such a small box that we're in, how much we play with perspective inside that space, where we're putting your attention, where we're putting her attention, and how we're creating it to use misdirection. And that was a tough, I think that that scene was probably one of the toughest nuts to crack in the whole movie. Yeah. And we kept developing it, like trying new things. And Why is there a big hole here, Peter? When are you going to put some sound in? <laughs> That's what I kept saying. No, it was great. But I, I, Peter, I really appreciate what you're saying, too. One of the things that I noticed about that scene is that you're playing with dynamic range a lot. As you mentioned, you get really, really quiet. And I think that's really important, especially with a horror film, because you know, if it's just at 11 the whole time, the audience is going to get exhausted, your ears close up, and then when you really need to get them, they're exhausted, right? So I actually find this to be, I, I know that's hard for you to believe, it's a remarkably restrained mix because it does play with dynamic range a lot. It was very important for us to like, and we, we, we have several moments in the film with very specific silences and like that creates this, I mean, this tension actually. And you could feel it last night, even like when things get very quiet the audience get quiet and you're just like sitting there on the edge. Okay, what's going to happen now? That's part of the vernacular too, is we know when things get quiet, something bad is about to happen, right? So you're playing with that. Yeah, I think silence was really, really, and again, that scene is a perfect example because of the quiet moments. Like I love those little things like when we cut the one shot perspective outside the elevator and she's banging on the door, you should be able to naturally hear her more, but we brought it right down to kind of create that sense of claustrophobia that she's inside this box and nobody's going to hear her. But I do think that this silence is really important. And I think within that, like in my mind, the way I looked at it was also, we could only afford to hit really high points on so many occasions early in the movie because of what was coming. So there's that, um, there's, a, there's a moment where someone has their hair removed in a very, very dramatic way early on in the film. And that's- Their, their hair removed is a yeah. euphemism, of course. Yeah, that's, that, that, that goes there. And so does the actual, I also wanted the opening title of the movie to go there because I wanted people, to get this sense of kind of grandiose operatic And it's a very satisfying gutsiness. moment yeah. in the theater when that, when that logo comes up. Yeah, but then we bring it you know, back down and we go into more the atmospheres of the home and the familiarity of things. And then when we cross the line back into the horror, we did talk a lot about, we just had to be cautious that we weren't always like maxing ourselves out because we had to have somewhere to go because when, it, when this film goes, like it, it doesn't really stop. We don't have a clip of it, but I, one of my favorite sequences from a sound design perspective is uh, the playing of the records. So, uh, you know, one of your characters, uh, Danny, finds these 100-year-old records with the incantations that he plays, and I love the way you handled uh, the sound treatment in that. Can you talk about that for just a minute and the development of, of that sound? Yeah, that was a big thing also, like creating that whole world of these vinyls. Um, so, um, yeah, we very early, we you recorded actually the sound of the priest on already on Yeah, the, on the set, I just threw him into a cupboard one day and like I needed a, a, a temp guide from another actor who plays Mr. Fonda in the story, one of the neighbors, Mark Mitchinson. And um, it was one of those things that I kept going, I'll get someone else to do it someday. And then he was just so good at it. He was so, so good. Um, and then I think we did re-record him, but it was really hard we, like, to get just that live, hey, just go record this, you know? And then we did, we did it again. And then it was all about, like, I was actually really ex always excited about this scene. This is another one, well, I pick at everything, but this was another one where I was excited about this. We were telling history. We were telling like another story behind the story. And like, it, maybe in another movie, you might be forced by executives to go, oh, we need to cut. We need to cut and show this event, or let's have a quick fl flash or a flashback of some sort. And I was always adamant that there was no way we could ever go that pathway. So we needed to tell a story from 100 years ago on some vinyl that's been slightly hand-cranked to get it up to the right revolutions with this kid. Um, 
And I think that was really special, really yeah. special moment. We had a lot of fun with it. The, the dialogue editor slash dialogue mixer, Garrett Farrell, he did a, I mean, an amazing job on the treatment of the voice and like it kind of going up and down in pitch and like, and we also wanted then to, for those vinyls to kind of become more and more enveloping. So we did, there's a lot of like surround treatment and then there's some really heavy bass stuff in there as well. And then uh, there was the whole, I mean, the sound of the vinyls, which was often when you have these vinyl sound effects from a library, then you can hear that it's just a loop going. And I mean, I'm, I'm a total like, <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of LPs, a lot of vinyl. And I'm, I was like, okay, we need to go back and find some actual 78s and like play them back. So I, I met up with a, with a Danish DJ who actually is also doing the scratch on the oh, LCD sound system. He was scratching earlier yeah, on yeah, at the yeah. start, yeah. So then, then we recorded these old 78s uh, and then like hearing that, that noise of that vinyl and that going together with the voice treatments just made it really come alive, I think. It was like trying to find a perfect inconsistency to it all. Which again, we talked about that idea of if you were turning the vinyl, you're not going to be perfectly accurate. So it's that, not be, yeah, exactly. that, that, that kind of playful com kind of coming in at that little warble was, was, was really, really important detail. But then you're also telling really important story. There's exposition amongst all of, you know, the fun that we're having with the sounds. We also needed to communicate key information to the audience. Pierre, you should give us a shout out to your re-recording mixers uh, who, did the, who, did, who did the work on the film. Yeah, so Garrett was uh, doing dialogue and music and then we had a, uh, an amazing Spanish mixer working on the effects side and Foley, uh, Gabriel Gutierrez. And uh, I mean, we, we were s s just sitting next to, the, to each other with these, like, at, at one point we actually had 666 tracks of sound effects. And we were like, okay, we need to keep it like this. This is perfectly demonic for this film. Uh, so there was a lot of sound in there. We have one last clip to show, uh, which in the movie comes just shortly after the, uh, that, that little lighthearted elevator sequence. Um, this is uh, the character of the mother, and, um, and she's starting to exhibit some odd behavior, and her children uh, react to it. Any, anything else you want to do to set up this scene? It's important to wash. Got to take a bath. Yep, take a bath. Okay. Mom? She's alive? She's burning up. I'll get some ice, like that's gonna help. We had a whole scene where we followed her getting the ice and everything. I remember did like 13 takes for opening a fridge and we never used it. So obviously kind of the centerpiece from that sequence is the scream, which kind of uh, boils water, breaks glass. Tell me about uh, uh, developing that sound. Yeah, that was a crazy one. Um, it actually, I mean, a few years back I was like, um, recording different screams for another project and I, f and I found this, um, this woman who were able to do these, these crazy screams. So I cut that in here, so like, and, and I needed to loop it a little bit. Um, but then on top of that you have like, or in, inside of that, there's, diff I mean, there's a bit of, uh, uh, animal screams, but there's also this thing that that we did a lot in the film that 
uh, all these electrical sounds, and I took some electromagnetic recordings and pitched them so that they fit with the tone of the scream, so that we could bring that up during the sequence, so it becomes more and more like like that kind of sound. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's it's a mixture of all these things, but. I mean, a sequence like this is one of these things where you read that in the script and you're, like, you're just thinking, whoa, this is really, this is sound as storytelling. This is yeah, it was, It's another one of those elements where we knew we needed to, just over the course of that scream, it's almost like a, a little microcosm of the movie, you know, because we had to start the scream and get it really, really loud. Um, and that was kind of, again, it was, a, it, was, it was a real challenge to get right. And even editorially, from a picture point of view, how long should it go on for? How long can we sustain this? How long can we actually kind of play it out? But it's, um, what did we call it? The Sonic Scream, was that its name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that was Peter's nickname for it. You touched on it earlier, Peter, but the, the treatment of the vocals in the film, especially on um, the mom character, Ellie, because she uses her voice in a very, you know, deceptive and manipulative way when she wants to her children to act in a, in a certain way. Um, but then other times, obviously, she has a, a very demonically possessed voice. So talk to me about, uh, about how you approached the treatment of her vocalizations. We did so many things with her voice, but I mean, first off, I just like Elisa Sutherland, the, the actress, was just like so amazing with her voice. We did uh, a couple of early ADR sessions where it was just about like, okay, so how, what kind of sounds can you do with your voice? And it was, I mean, apart from it being pretty crazy, like, I, I can also do this. And then we, we got like all these crazy recordings that, that, uh, like that, that became a part of this. So it was her own voice, her, her weird treated ADR voice, some of Jenny's voice and some animal stuff a lot of different distortion and different pitches. I mean, I, Garrett had like, the dialogue mixer had like, I mean, he had like 10 different plugins going with weird things that were running at the same time. But we tried to do it as organic as possible. That was something that we talked about from the very beginning. Yeah, that was a key thing I was gonna say was exactly. that I wanted it to feel, from my point of view, real. I didn't just want it to be a bunch of, like, you know, I'm not technical, exactly. but I just didn't want it to be a bunch of filters, like, turn it on and make it creepy. It had to be made, just like the movie is, out of, as real as possible, out of real things. And that was something you guys did a, did a great job with in, in getting it to that place that I hoped for. Exactly. Kept on evolving throughout the process, but lots of different elements. And, like, um, then, like, towards the end of the film where, like, there's more and more voice treatments also for other characters and so on. It's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So you, you get the assignment, you read the script, it's just this massive amount of material. Where did you start? What was the first thing that you, did, that you dove into? Um, I a, bottle start of, a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> I talked with my therapist. <laughs> um, no, really like recording lots of sounds and then also listening through the, the, these libraries of the old sounds were really... And I mean, for me, I'm, I grew up with Evil Dead. For me, like I had... The old Evil Dead, like especially Evil Dead 2, I, I remember having that on VHS as a teenager and I, and I saw that film so much that the tape crumbled. I mean, I've been, I, I'm such a big fan of those films. So like being able to kind of build on that kind of history was amazing in itself. But yeah, we really spend a lot of time recording sounds and because there was so much sound written into the script, we could start collecting sounds very early. Um, so that's an incredible gift as a sound designer to like, instead of having to record everything when you're actually in the edit, then we could do a lot of these things very early on. And it gives you time to experiment and you know, go down and try things that don't work and then you can yeah. revise. And Peter, do you remember the name, the favorite name that I gave something that you defined a sound for? No, what was that? The intergalactic whip crack. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that's, I kept on, I, was, I wanted a sound for when the force first breaks through. I was like, I don't know how to put this into words. It's like, it's kind of like an intergalactic whip crack. <laughs> and you'd always be taking the piss out of me going, I'm just searching for that intergalactic whip crack. We'll find it, we'll get there at some point. Get there at some point. This is, 
I have to say, this is so delightful for me. I've known Peter for a long time. Peter, you were on the Dolby podcast what, a couple of years ago talking about uh, we were, the, the work that he did on the director Robert Machoyan's beautiful film, A Killing of Two Lovers, which has fantastic sound design. It's so different from, from this film. And that's a great example of, I mean, I think that film, the budget was like, what, $60,000? It was crazy. A beautiful sound design. It doesn't have to be just for big budget Hollywood studio films. Great sound. And then, of course, uh, uh, Peter's sound design and mixes in a beautiful documentary that was nominated for an Academy Award this year, House Made of Splinters, about a Ukrainian orphanage. So you don't just do horror films. You do, very, you do other kinds of sound design as well. But I think that's also this this thing that we, with this film, also just exploring different things all the time. It's really, for me, making this movie was an adventure. Like, we were trying out things all the time and getting inspirations from very, very different things. I remember talking with Garrett about the band Low, which is, uh, uh, I mean, they usually make very quiet music. The last couple of records have been these kind of weirdly distorted, but a quiet music at the same time. And you would never think, okay, how can that inspire Evil Dead? But for Garrett and me, that was big inspiration for some of the treatments of the voices. And like, you get inspirations from all kinds of places. And that's one of the amazing things about doing sound and also about this collaboration where we could kind of try out everything. There was no kind of limit. It was kind of like, okay, let's let's try and go do that and do that. And that's an amazing, inspiring uh, process. Let's take some questions from the audience. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, so you have this vast use of dynamics throughout the movie and this overall crescendo. How did you prepare and keep track of that throughout the movie? Did you use a spreadsheet of some sort? Also, did you start at the loudest point and work backwards? That's a good question. I'm really bad with spreadsheets, so that's definitely a no. Um, I think it was just, there's so much repetition in the process and post-production that you start to get to grips with it. And then you also work in reels with the movie. So the movie was in six different reels. And sometimes we'd look at the shape of each individual reel and then that reel in relationship to the next and the next kind of beyond. So you do break it down into these kind of shorter 12 minute, 13 minute sections of, of movie, which kind of helped. And then I think, we, in a, I think we probably did look to some of the louder points knowing that they had to be places we were gonna go. So we were, there was a strong awareness all the time of what those high points would be and the importance of being able to move back down behind those. So I guess, yes, like to everything, we did, we did track and we did, we did pay a lot of attention to those things. And then also for the film, we, there were a couple of different pre, couple of previews pretty early on in the process, which meant we had to do preview mixes for those. And that was, I mean, even though- that Forgot about be, that. That can be really hard because you're like, you've suddenly you have to kind of make a, a preview mix in just a few days and it's just like you're sweating and you're working constantly. But it's also really helpful because it gives you an overview of the film. So that was also a way of kind of finding out, okay, so how, how does the overall structure of the film work sonically? I'm really glad you brought that up because I know um, you brought up the test screenings and the, the, the temp mixes for those. And I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I know that this film was going to go to HBO Max and, and go straight to the streaming platform last year, but they did some audience test screenings. The reaction to it was like what we heard last night at the Paramount was through the roof. And so the studio said, oh, maybe we should put this out theatrically. Yeah, that was a journey. Um, <clears throat> the... Um Look, this film was was envisaged to be a, a theatrical experience from the get-go, and the timing of when it got made uh, kind of tallied with some, call it a high point, but a low point in COVID in terms of what was happening. And, you know, not not just this studio, but studios were getting the jitters about what to do with, with materials. So, I, you know, going into the movie, I still believed it could be a theatrical prospect, but I always knew with them talking about HBO Max and putting it there, we were going to have a fight on our hands. Um, and we had some, you know, brilliant executives, people in New Line, Richard Brenner, Dave Neustadter, and then with um, Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi coming into Warner Brothers, they went down to a test screening um, and the movie blew the roof off a little bit like last night and nobody wants to leave money on the table, right? Not in this business. So it turned around. That's great. 
Uh, we've got time, unfortunately, for just one more question, so it's yours. My question was for Lee. I was just curious. Um, this is your second feature film, and you said you had made short films before that. Just about how you made that jump from short films to feature films. By missing the far side of the ledge and smashing my face many, many times. Um, yeah, it's like, it's actually really cool, because my, my, my long-standing uh, producer, John Kevill, is over here in the back lurking. And it, it was, it, I've got to give him a little bit of credit here, because I was, you know, doing lots of different things, and I watched a horror countdown show one Christmas, I guess it was like 2009 or something, and uh, I talked to him about it, and he said, let's just go make a short that's one really good, scary scene, let's, like, and let's do it to a really high level. And that started the journey. And the shorts, you know, there was like, you know, 18 months or a couple of years between the shorts that we made. But then getting to the feature film was, was really, really tough. And at that point in time, I was directing TV commercials really badly. And um, because my heart wasn't in it at all. But I needed the money. You know, you're up and coming. You know, you need to pay the bills, keep the lights on. And that kind of got in the way of being able to truly focus on, you know, on my feature film work and what I truly wanted to do. So once I hung up my, uh, my boots in commercials world, it actually kind of started to happen. But it is, it is a slow leap. And I think if, if you're fortunate to find why I raised John, if you're fortunate to find collaborators early that you're working with, like I'm not sure if you're a writer, director or producer or what it is that you're doing, but, what, but whatever side it is, if you're for, like, hold on to those collaborators and build, because I think if you can come up together with a team of people and you keep building, Peter's a new member of the team right now, and you keep building it. Not that it makes it easier to get stuff made, but it makes it easier to do a good job when you get the opportunity. And then given that opportunity, you just grab it with both hands and just essentially kill yourself um, and, and hope, well, kill yourself. Yeah. That's great. Well, I know you've got to rush off. Lee, Peter, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us. Pleasure. About Thank this you, film. guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you for coming. And if you didn't get a chance to see the film last night, or even if you did, it is opening on April 21st. See it at a Dolby Cinema and Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. It's a spectacular experience. Guys, thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Many thanks to Lee and Peter for taking time out of their busy schedules to come to the Dolby House the day after their premiere at South by Southwest to talk to us about this amazing new movie. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon, and our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks for listening.